welcome again to ICF's podcast series on COVID-19. My name is Marco Warren. I'm the Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives at ICF. And it's been our pleasure to continue this series about COVID-19 response, recovery, and mitigation. Today's subject is timely in many respects. COVID-19 has been going on for several weeks now, and for the first time in U.S. history, all 50 states and territories have received major declarations of major disaster from the President of the United States. Given that we are also in the spring of 2020, we are also entering a period of increased normal seasonal weather activity, Midwest flooding, severe storms, and of course, the start of hurricane season, which will begin in June, and wildfire season uh, that will begin to kick up on the West Coast and in the mountain states. All of those particular events pose unique challenges in an era, era where COVID-19 is forcing shelter in place, social distancing, uh, the closure of many businesses, schools, uh, government facilities. And even though some states are beginning to open up certain activities within their states, there's no guarantee that between now and the start of uh, these severe event seasons um, that we aren't going to have concurrent events. As a matter of fact, it's a given. COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon. There's likely also to be a fall resurgence, a second wave, which will coincide with sometimes the worst of the hurricane season. That said, how do we as state and local emergency managers and federal emergency managers, businesses and communities need to be thinking about dealing with concurrent disasters while COVID-19 is going on that will stress both resources, finances, and our thinking in how we address these challenges. We have two experts today uh, who are steeped in emergency management backgrounds, long history in the federal, state, and local level, uh, and have been supporting clients across the United States for many years on these issues. First up, uh, I'd like to introduce Mike Janelle. Mike Janelle is the Director of Public Assistance at ICF, and he has served over 12 years in disaster management uh, and public assistance programs, uh, which is the infrastructure-based recovery programs that are managed by FEMA, working at the state and local level. He served on county, uh, the, some of the country's major disasters like Katrina in Louisiana, Maria in Puerto Rico, and is a public assistance subject matter expert uh, and has helped drive the $90 billion Hurricane Maria recovery efforts in Puerto Rico while continue uh, to advise other clients across the nation. Mike was formerly a Texas Commission on Fire Protection Certified Firefighter NEMT, and we're pleased to have Mike join us today. But we also have another guest and an expert uh, from one of our teaming partners, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, at ATCS, Steve Crawl. Steve is a Homeland Security and Public Safety professional, has over 21 years of program and project management experience in both the private and public sector environments. He's directed analytical and strategic planning projects for a range of federal, state, and local public safety clients, and has developed path-breaking work in assessing community resiliency, infrastructure assessments, all hazards planning, and assessment and evaluation of specific Homeland Security and emergency management programs. Both Steve's expertise and Mike's expertise are ways of communicating information to clients at all levels of government, uh, 
about things they need to consider during COVID-19 in preparation and in advance of these upcoming storm seasons that we know are starting uh, even as we speak today. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, and we appreciate your dedication to, uh, to the nation and to this activity. Uh, Mike, wanted to really start with you. And I think one of the challenges that, um, we see coming out of, uh, out of COVID-19 are issues that the, the locals, especially the state and local applicants, uh, for public, in, uh, assistance, for individual assistance, et cetera, are going to have to deal with. You know, when disasters happen, obviously, um, there's a tremendous amount of activity that uh, happens very early in a disaster to try to gauge the level of disaster damage that's done, the preliminary damage assessments. As we're in the middle of facing uh, social distancing practices, the need to protect not only our frontline emergency service personnel, how should state and local governments especially, and ultimately FEMA officials, uh, be thinking about practicing that social distancing and still doing public damages, you know, preliminary damage assessments and site inspections. Absolutely. Hey, Marco, uh, you know, thanks for having me. Um, I believe, you know, COVID-19 has and, and will ultimately change the way we do business as a society. Um, you know, we, we're starting to see businesses of all types, you know, restaurants to doctors, uh, they, they're changing their standard way of doing things so they can practice, you know, safe and effective social distancing. Um, I truly believe that that's going to include how we prepare and recover from disasters um, from this point forward. You know, a lot of the a lot of the new uh, technologies out there. There's a lot of virtual meeting platforms, and um, I think those are going to become very sophisticated uh, going forward just because of their widespread usage, um, you know, globally because of this COVID-19 pandemic. And, I, and I'm pretty confident that most of those um, platforms will be used in the majority of our engagements, you know, disaster uh, management. And, and I think we can we can take advantage of, of these uh, rapidly changing and, and improving platforms. You know, I recently uh, read an article on you know strategy of slowly reopening the country and and one of the restaurant business owners said that you know so much has changed for them that 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 he feels he is opening a new business for the first time you know and and I, and I think you know that's true I think everybody's gonna have to change the way they do things and and I think disaster recovery and disaster preparedness and, and disaster management as a whole we're gonna have to reprogram really how we do things in disaster management when we're facing, um, you know, uh, times when, when we have to practice social distancing and, and, and have health concerns, you know, and, and in doing that for years uh, at the FEMA level, we've, we've been doing PDAs and, and uh, site inspections, you know, with large gatherings of, of professionals of different backgrounds, you know, FEMA, uh, state, local officials, we would always pair industry experts such as, you know, structural engineers, civil engineers um, to the types of damages sustained by applicants. And then we would also pair them with with different personnel from FEMA programs like environmental and hazard mitigation. So so you can see how how we have, you know, boots on the ground engagements grow to large number of personnel, large gatherings. And, and with with us facing a global pandemic like like COVID nineteen, 
um, that that's not always healthy for for us to be in in close proximity in, in facilities and whatnot. So it's it's really not unheard of for states to perform PDAs in a in a quasi remote fashion. States like Louisiana, North Carolina, Florida, they they often have multiple declared events that overlap with each other, and that causes a, a strain on resources, um, personnel become limited. So so those states often have practiced uh, you know a remote fashion PDA being performed where they would send really limited personnel out and to gather information and report that back to a central location. You know, I think coupling that with a, a pandemic like, like COVID-19 would, would cause us to, to really improve on that and, and, and go to us more of a virtual platform to perform, you know, preliminary damage assessments, site inspections, and um, keep our personnel and, and our applicants, you know, safe from from any health issues. Mike, one of the, one of the questions, obviously, is in order to do that, we have to rely on technology, and we have advanced technology now that is even better than it was a few years ago, uh, and to allow us much more ability to do more remote. Uh, damage assessment work without having to send the army of boots on the ground, so to speak. In recent years, that technology has increased. What are some of those technologies that have gained some traction that you've seen that we've used in in our work and that you've seen states and locals use in order to really push forward this notion of you don't have to have a person everywhere? Absolutely, Marco. Um, we began researching, you know, developing and implementing the use of, of different state-of-the-art technologies like drones and 3D imagery. Um, we, could, we could reduce the number of, of people and personnel in facilities that um, really didn't, that, that weren't structurally sound. Some of the buildings were contaminated. Um, you know, they just had health issues after a disaster. And, and, and those facilities were somewhat unsafe really for large gatherings of people so when we began researching these these technologies we, we thought we could implement them just to keep our our personnel safe um, we used the drones you know to get into remote areas um, you know unsafe grounds then um, we also have the 3d imagery where Sometimes it still takes human interaction, but it's very limited to, to, you know, one or two people to take those images and, and take that data back to FEMA or counterparts. And then they have these full immersive interactive uh, videos and full documentation of really what we're looking at. And they, that, that limits exposure to the buildings. A lot of times with FEMA as well, you would have multiple site visits to go back and capture uh, different areas that, that were just um, missed the first time. Well, well, these videos make that more efficient as well. But with COVID-19, we found that these technologies are perfect tools to keep our teams and clients healthy and practice social distancing while still gathering all of the data needed efficiently. Certainly the data that's being generated by these systems, by these capabilities is, is critical because data drives decision making. Data drives um, eligibility, uh, knowing what the damage is. 
because data is so much more important now than ever, uh, especially when you're giving, given, uh, you know, large scale events, multiple activities going on. Uh, what are some of the, the things that state and locals both need to be thinking about now in both the use of that, that data, um, and the capabilities they need to actually manage that data, especially since much of it now will have to be remotely developed? Right. Mark, Mark, we, we always feel that it's paramount, you know, that our applicants prepare, you know, and our clients alike, uh, that, that they prepare ahead of the disaster. You know, they begin developing their database, databases with um, the information about the facilities, about the um, types of, of claims that they may have, um, and, and they populate those beforehand. That makes it more efficient when the disaster hits. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of databases and systems out there. We, we record all of our data uh, from our teams and clients into the system we develop called Disastracks. Um, but that gives us the ability to provide the necessary data, the complete data, you know, to our federal, state, and local partners very quickly so they can make decisions, you know, efficiently. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Steve, I'd like to bring you in now because obviously the efforts to collect damage data after um, the event is important. And we'll get back to that subject a little bit later when we're talking about the future. But there's a challenge that exists even pre-damage assessment, and that really revolves around the notion of there are events like hurricanes that require evacuations, uh, sheltering. Uh, in many states, uh, that evacuation not only takes place within state, but quite frankly, can take place from state to state. Uh, for example, hurricanes that want to do a coast skimming exercise up the coast of Florida tend to drive Floridians to Georgia uh, and into Alabama or North Carolina. And other states experience the same type of evacuation patterns, all of which raises interesting issues when it comes to evacuation during COVID-19, sheltering during COVID-19. So how do you think in terms of how state and local folks and the federal government need to be thinking about evacuations, uh, especially along coastal states during concurrent disasters? Great question, Marco. Actually, when looking at evacuations and looking at it from both the state and locality level, as well as the individual itself, I do believe that we need to start brushing off our MOUs with other states. So if you're a state representative and you have to actually speak with the adjoining state in order to understand that if an evacuation needs to occur, how many people may you have to ship to that adjoining state? And in turn, is that adjoining state willing to take on these evacuees? Because they may be going there for a short period of time, but we've seen in other disasters, as you know, that people may be going to another state for a significant amount of time. If that is the case, that adjoining state will now have an increase in social services that they're going to need to push out to the individuals coming into their state. During this time of COVID-19, as you know, people are going to be asking themselves if we're accepting in the evacuees, where are we going to place them? Because we still have to meet these standards for social distancing, quarantining, and sheltering in place. So instead of looking at these large-scale shelters, which we've had in the past, we're going to have to focus now on hotel space, 
putting individuals in hotels, as well as talking with our universities, because at the university level, you may see that they have dorm space available so that you can actually keep those social distancing standards. This is also going to change the way that not only do we shelter individuals, but how do we actually feed the individuals as well? Because from the feeding standpoint, here it cannot, it can no longer be that banquet style uh, type feeding. You're going to have to deliver these meals door to door. And how is that going to be handled when people are considering sheltering, sheltering these particular evacuees? Also, one of the things that you could do right now in order, if you are one of these states that you're potentially thinking a hurricane can actually hit you in a coastal area and you may have to evacuate, you may want to actually plan exercises around these particular scenarios right now with these adjoining states so that you can work out those kinks associated with how these evacuees will come in and actually how you're actually going to, to manage them once they're there in the adjoining state. From an individual standpoint, Marco, you're going to have to look at how individuals are going to need to make the decision to evacuate. During COVID-19, we have placed a tremendous amount of emphasis on sheltering in place. Now you're, you may have to come out with a different message from an emergency manager standpoint and convince people that they will need to leave the safety of their home and actually evacuate to another area. I find this to be one of the biggest challenges that we're gonna have now because of the fact that people will have to make this individual decision whether they weigh out the storm and wait there within their homes or are they gonna take the risk and go to the adjoining state and actually potentially have exposure to COVID-19. So those are some of the issues that are revolving around it from a state level and also from an individual level, but it is the time to prepare, to do the exercises now and to prepare individual plans accordingly. Thanks, Steve. That's a great point because I think one of the challenges around uh, that kind of sheltering and evacuation is certainly around proximity. Perhaps there's a silver lining that the universities and school systems are closed now, which is actually allowing dorm space to be potentially available, which might not otherwise have been available had schools been in session. Uh, and obviously the lack of travel that has existed at this time also is I'm sure uh, created a little bit more hotel bed viability uh, in terms of space available than it might otherwise have been. But all of that has to be pre-planned and thought out ahead of time. If you had to kind of put your finger on one of the, the number one forecasted issues that a community uh, is going to have if asked to evacuate due to an oncoming natural disaster, what might that be? Uh, again, Marco, it's going to go back to convincing people that they're going to need to leave the safety of their homes in order to go to another area that they're unfamiliar with. Um, but where does the most danger lie for them? Is it that they sit there and wait out a particular hurricane, for example, or are they now going to go to an alternative state, have safety there? But again, we're dealing with this other disaster of the pandemic and we don't know how that will actually affect these individuals coming into the state. Uh, also, though, you also have these financial risks that are going to revolve around taking on the evacuees that we talked about in regards to increased social services. But also, once people actually leave the safety of their home and go to another adjoining area, they're going to start to consider, well, 
do I actually need to reconsider where I actually am residing because of the dangers associated with the particular place if I'm faced with two individual disasters? So do I now stay in my particular or am I going to reside back to my original state where I actually was just faced with the decision of two particular disasters? Or am I going to leave the safety of my home, go to an adjoining state where it is more safe and secure, and maybe I can work and now reside there? So those are some of the questions that I know are coming up with individuals um, in regards to that thinking. But also from, we also have the issues with uh, students as well. Students right now, they may be going back into session come the fall time frame. And in turn, how is it that the universities are going to be accepting these students? And what is it going to look like if they still have to maintain social distancing standards? I know personally that uh, we, we have a daughter who's in college right now, and that if she is actually going to go back to that university, how is it that if she does get COVID-19 and becomes ill, how is we as parents going to cope with that working with the university to get that information in. So, Marco, I think it's a multitude of issues that individuals are faced with right now. But if we work through those, those particular scenarios now, we can be better prepared when they actually arrive at our doorstep. Yeah, certainly that preparation, Stephen, is going to include this, uh, really an examination, too, of some of the financial risks that take place. Uh, and localities are going to be faced with certain financial risks. Any disaster has a blow to the uh, local economy, the tax base of any community. What do you view as some of those risks from a financial perspective that um, localities have to understand and be thinking about as you're looking at both pandemic and natural disaster coinciding? So we have all gotten used to working at home now. A lot of companies are shifting and realizing that do they actually need to have a physical office space or can they now become virtual? So we're all getting into this uh, mode of we can actually probably work anywhere as long as we have an internet hookup and we have our computers and, and we're all set up in, in that fashion. So if you have individuals that are faced with two disasters at the same time and then they go to another adjoining state, they may want to reside there. All of a sudden, you're going to have tax revenues significantly decrease. So individual communities are going to need to convince their residents that they actually have plans in place. They know how to keep those individuals safe and that in turn, once once we're through the pandemic and once this other disaster is over, that they will be able to come back and they will be more resilient going forward. But also this leads us into companies too and how you're gonna think about it at the community level on how to maintain your tax base and making sure that the companies will still reside within your local community and how you need to work with them. So these offices of economic uh, development as well as resiliency offices within your local community need to be proactive in, in their approach right now from an emergency management standpoint, reaching out to them and making sure that they have their continuity of operations plans in place currently, that when they are actually able to come back, that they can come back safely and that it's going to be a more resilient community going forward. So that has to be spoken about now 
in order to make sure that they feel comfortable with coming back in and keeping that tax base solid at that local and state level. Just recently this past year, I worked on some of the California wildfires where in one evening, a particular community lost over 3,000 homes. They were the most expensive homes within that community. Their tax revenue dropped by 8% overnight. How is it that they're going to then make certain that people will come back in and rebuild and that they feel safe if another urban wildfire is to come in. So that's one particular example that they've learned from to make sure that they're enhancing building codes and also how are they actually managing the actual environment so that they could stop wildfires from entering into these urban type settings in the future. Thanks, Steve. Mike, I want to bring you in for a second while we're talking about the financial issues. And really, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of financial assistance that's provided by the federal government, both under COVID-19, of course, but also under normal, the normal disaster declaration project. And many states that are affected, especially by um, hurricanes, floods, and the wildfires have been dealing with past disasters while they're certainly susceptible to new ones. And the financial support that is available is in many cases 75% federal funding for for reimbursement as but in 25% state or local funding but whether it's a ongoing project or a new project um some of the uh state and local governments are going to have to really deal with handling slowdown in approvals potential funding challenges um, how do projects keep moving? What are your thoughts on the financial aspect of the funding and the programs, especially as state locals interact with FEMA? Absolutely. Marco, we're, we're actually starting to see you know, our public assistance program be affected you know, by COVID in areas other than just like force account labor or medical related costs. We're starting to see actual you know, facilities being affected by that. And, and what I mean is we, we have applicants that are currently recovering from a past disaster where they have facilities being constructed and worked on to repair them from, from a catastrophic event. And, and some of those construction costs now are starting to, to increase. We've, we've seen a, a decrease in, in manpower and labor, uh, We've seen an increase in uh, the cost of materials, and then we've also seen a decrease in limited availability of materials due to manufacturing shortages in um, different areas. So what we're seeing is the cost of that construction project to, to start increasing, and, and we're still working with local and, and regional officials with FEMA on how, how we're going to handle that. You know, under the current FEMA uh, programs like 428, which which has great benefits, but we agree upon the applicants. They agree upon uh, a predetermined amount, and and that that amount is then capped, and and those projects can can no longer be versioned by FEMA, and and the increase in cost was was unforeseen. And, and so we're working with those state and, uh, and local uh, or state and federal officials to try to figure out how FEMA uh, anticipates how they will they will provide assistance for those increased costs that were unforeseen on on previous disasters. That's a great point. And, and certainly the challenges around that are, 
really rely on good documentation um, because obviously understanding the supplies that maybe were available and used prior to COVID-19 affecting the supply chain and driving up costs then have to be measured and measured against the new costs or the ongoing costs that have that have changed as a result. And, and that's, that requires some, uh, uh, some significant, uh, understanding, capture of cost and, and, uh, discussion at all levels when it comes to this. I think ultimately, though, it's state and local governments are also going to be wrestling with the notion of resources. We've seen a number of stories in major publications about, uh, potential shortfalls of emergency management officials at all level of government. Um, certainly, uh, the use of technology is going to help in many ways make the larger need for people, a people footprint, um, from a governmental perspective, perhaps lower. But at the same time, we're seeing a significant opportunity here, I think, uh, to address how the public not only helps itself, but can help our communities writ large. Um, as we all sit in our homes every day wondering, you know, if we're if we're not working uh, uh, a normal schedule from our home, you know, what do we do? Uh, watching TV was one thing, but what else can we be doing? And Steve, what kind of benefits can we as a as a local community, um, as states really gather out of this pandemic effort that can uh, drive um, activity around community support and community preparedness so that there is a lesser of an impact on government when something happens in the next concurrent disaster? Oh, great question. Um, I think right now you see that there are people that, that want to give back to the community. There's there's an outpouring of of time right now as well as how is it that I can actually support my community going forward? And that those feelings are strong. I do believe that people want to volunteer. So right now, I believe it's a perfect opportunity for local and state emergency managers to be, begin to uh, reinforce that concept of volunteering. Get people in your, in your neighborhood to go online and maybe take an online cert course where individuals at that community level will understand how to help their other neighbors during a time of a future disaster. If we have concurrent disasters, volunteers will be needed. And also we're gonna to have to maintain those social distancing standards, but at the same time, train them up in order to understand how to volunteer in their local community. Also, this is the, the perfect time for jurisdictions to go through how to actually look at their particular uh, community and how to become more resilient in the future. We're getting hit every day with, with those questions on how is it that at the individual um, standpoint and also at the locality, how can we become a more resilient community going forward, not just in COVID-19, but other disasters as well. So actually having those discussions in the local community going forward, I believe right now is that the, the greatest opportunity for everybody. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Mike, final thought from you on uh, what a concurrent disaster uh, means to state and local governments at this point. And the thing, the one thing that you think that they absolutely need to do today uh, to, to move forward and be ready for it. I, th I think the biggest thing that they, that any local state, government can do is just prepare for the disaster. Take a normal disaster that, that they're used to uh, recovering from 
and 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 step back and and take a clear picture of how COVID nineteen or a global pandemic with social distancing would affect that. Appreciate it, Mike, and thank you. And I want to thank both you and Steve for joining us today. And to all who have been listening to the podcast series, we thank you for your continued interest. Um, listenership continues to go up, both this podcast, the accompanying uh, Q&A session, uh, the additional documents and resources will be made available shortly. Uh, and you'll be able to see links also to federal, state, uh, and other um, important additional information on how to address these challenges. And I want to thank ACTS from ATCS rather for assisting us. And Steve, thank you for joining us today. We look forward to doing uh, additional podcasts in the future. And this particular subject will likely be the subject of a longer form uh, webinar in the not too distant future. But we also have podcasts uh, planning underway for uh, duplication of benefits uh, and long-term public health. But more importantly, we want to look in depth at what the new normal might look like and how do we start achieving that as we look at both the mitigation programs that are in place now and the mitigation efforts that need to happen as a result of COVID-19. Thank you for all for joining us. We appreciate your interest. Go to icf.com slash insights for more details, and we'll hear you on the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you.